Let's pray. Father, it's always good to be in your house with your people, and we delight to be together, to sing your praises, to fellowship with one another, to minister to one another, to hear your word taught, and to enjoy true fellowship around the scriptures. And it is your Holy Spirit who quickens us and makes us alive and causes this word, your word, to be alive in our hearts. And so, Father, we pray, would you send your spirit now to so move and so speak to us by your word that we would be changed, that we would come away from this time together looking more like Jesus Christ. Lord, we are your sheep. And Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. May we, Father, be eager to follow our shepherd this morning as we hear his word to us. We praise you for it in advance, and we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in 1 Timothy 3. If you're new with us, we are just systematically working our way through 1 Timothy, and we find ourselves here in 1 Timothy beginning with uh, chapter 3, verse 8. And so as we continue kind of working our way through this little book, this letter of the Apostle Paul to his protege, Timothy, we would do well, I think, to remind ourselves of the interpretive key for this whole book, and that is a specific verse, and that is chapter 3, verse 15. And here, if you could turn with me to 3.15, you're probably at 3, and uh, we can look at 15 together, and here's what it says. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you will know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth, or pillar and foundation of the truth. Now, you remember some years earlier, Paul had planted the church of Ephesus. This is where Timothy is now, but let's remind ourselves of the history here. Paul went and planted the church of Ephesus, and then after he planted Ephesus, he went around Asia Minor planting other churches. By the time he wrote this little epistle, Timothy had joined him on the mission, was part of his ministry team. They were traveling, and Timothy was kind of Paul's disciple, protege, learning what it is to live for Christ and serve the church. Immediately before writing this letter, Paul had been released from jail. He came out of jail, he reunited with Timothy, they both head over to Ephesus, Paul takes off and leaves him there and says, now you be the apostolic representative here at this church for a little while, a temporary mission, but there's some problems there he wanted him to sort out. And so he sends Timothy over to the church of Ephesus and Paul uh, leaves. He goes maybe to Philippi, we don't know for sure where, Um, But it was the beginning of this aspect of Paul's meaning, and it was beginning to look like his plan for his swift return back to Ephesus was going to be delayed. And so in verse 15, he tells Timothy, it's going to be perhaps a little longer for me to get back. So if I am delayed, as if he's saying, if I'm delayed any more than I already have been, I want you to know how people should behave themselves in the household of God. Now, the household of God is not a building, it's the people. It's wherever you are, wherever you are, wherever you gather. How should the saints behave? And he's talking about personal issues, and he's talking about structural issues relative to church polity, how, how the church is to be led, how the church is to be run. And so he says, I'm writing these things to you so that in case I'm delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, Paul was not, he was committed not only to planting churches, but to make sure that they functioned as churches the way God intended. And with that on his heart, he reminds Timothy of two things in this verse I just read to you. First, he reminds him who created and who maintains ownership of the church. It is none other than the living God. This is his church. 
It's not Paul's church. It's not Timothy's church. It's not the elders' church. It's not any singular pastor's church. The church belongs to God. She is Christ's bride, and he is jealous for her purity and her integrity, not to mention her unity and some other things that end with why. He also reminds Timothy of the purpose of the church, namely to exalt the truth, to hold up the truth, to set on display for the world God's truth, and to defend, hence the word buttress, to defend the truth. The truth here in the pastoral epistles usually refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which stands as the blazing center around which all other truth from God revolves. The church isn't to be thought of as a gathering place for religious people to experiment with novel ideas of spirituality. It isn't the corporate headquarters for organized attempts to create unity in the world. It is not the champion of some political agenda or trying to fix society. The purpose of the church is pretty singular That is, the church is to stand in the world as God's ordained beacon of the truth, the truth. It stands as the herald of the gospel and proclaims the gospel in Christ alone, salvation alone through Christ, and calling all men and women everywhere to repent and be reconciled to God. And the only way The only way it can do that, the only way the church can fulfill its calling is to maintain its resolve to exalt and defend the truth. And you've been here, you kind of know what text we're looking at, and you're thinking, how does this have to do with deacons? Well, we'll get there in a minute. What I want you to see first, however, is simply this. You can see why now... Why false teaching is so heavy on the apostle's mind. In fact, you remember he devoted the entire first chapter to instruction on how to deal with false teachers. He wanted Timothy to set in order things that were happening in the church, mainly because there were false teachers who had made them, uh, put themselves in leadership and were causing all kinds of divisions. And then he returns to the subject of false teachers repeatedly throughout this epistle. So when we come to chapter 3 and ask, why is Paul so much, why is Paul's letter here so much about, why does he talk so much about elders and deacons? And here's the answer to that question. Everything rises and falls on leadership. As go the leaders, so goes the church. You see a church that's got serious doctrinal problems, and I'll, tell you, I'll show you a church that's got serious leadership problems. You see a, a church that's full of immorality? I'll show you a church leadership that's got problems with immorality. And so it goes. Everything rises and falls on the leadership. The false teaching problem of the church of Ephesus was a leadership problem. The church had adopted a wrong view A wrong understanding about what kind of leaders should direct and oversee the church of the living God. The wrong kind of leadership is precisely the kind that the world of Paul's day was embracing. In their eyes, the best leaders were those who could manipulate and control a large number of people. For them, humility and purity are signs of weakness, not strength. Wine and wealth are pleasures to be flaunted and indulged. And that may work in a secular society, in a a secular corporation, so to speak. But in the eyes of the living God, the only ones who are qualified to oversee the church of the living God, the household of God, are those who have a verifiable reputation of holiness and devotion to their wives, to their children, love for God and his word, which is coupled with an ability to proclaim his word to teach it, to use it in discipleship and other kinds of training. And so as disciples of Jesus Christ, they understand Jesus' teaching that if anyone wishes to be first, he must be servant of all. 
For even the Son of Man did not come to be, what? Served, but to give his life a ransom for many. Leadership is not about controlling people. It is about representing God and his truth and leading them with grace and love and humility. And so faithful elders serve the flock by feeding them the truth, protecting them from error, and leading them as they follow Christ. Paul repeatedly says, follow me, because I'm following Christ. And I think Paul would say, if at any time it appears that I'm not following Christ, don't follow me anymore. Follow Christ. The primacy of servanthood in the church becomes all the more clear when we begin to think about what it means to be a deacon in the household of God. What does it mean to be a deacon in the household of God? Well, our governing idea here this morning is this, that God grows and matures his church by giving it deacons who are willing to serve the church. God grows and matures the church by giving it deacons who are willing to serve the church. And we're going to proceed under three headings this morning, and you see them in your notes. The origin of deacons, the duties of deacons, and the qualifications of deacons. And before you start thinking, I must have come on the wrong Sunday, I was hoping to get a good practical message this morning visiting this church, and uh, I think you will. I think you will. This isn't just about some ecclesiastical ideal of leadership. This is about all of us. This is about all of us. And so let's start with the first one, the origin of deacons. Let's do a little Bible study, shall we? Dig into the text and see what we can learn about deacons. Um, It's not as cut and dried as many churches make it out to be. It's a difficult topic because in the Word of God, it is not just clearly laid out. For elders, it's, it's, it's more clearly laid out. For deacons, not so much. I might even press it to say, not at all. And that gives us some challenges. So if we study the office of deacon, we begin with understanding something of the meaning of the key word in Greek. In the Greek language, the word for deacon is diakonos, which means one who is busy with something in a manner that is of assistance to someone else. Doesn't that warm your heart? That's from the Tyndall Bible Dictionary. The term finds its origin in the idea of laboring in the dust. Originally, it was used in reference to those who serve or wait on tables, serving food. But its usage eventually, as it time passed, became a broader term and spoke of any form of service. The word serve in the Greek language is just as fluid and, um, and plastic as the word serve is in the English language. For example, let's just think about the English language. What does it mean to serve? Well, you can serve dinner, or you can serve a warrant. Or you can serve a tennis ball. Or you could serve as president, or you could serve time in jail. (laughs) Right? I mean, all of those are appropriate uses of the term serve. And what I want to demonstrate for you by that is that when we go to Greek, it doesn't get any more specific than it does in English. The word serve can mean, I mean, a lot of different things. I was going to say 10,000, but I get in, people tease me about saying 10,000 all the time. Maybe not 10,000 meanings, but a lot of different meanings, depending on the context. Usually, however, in the New Testament, when it speaks of service, it's referring to a kind of service that meets another person's need. Now, you see a direct connection with love here, don't you? Because you know the definition of love. And love isn't a feeling that you feel when you feel like you're feeling something you never felt before. To love is to give what you have that the other person needs because why? Because God wants you to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what love is. You can love one another even if you don't feel like it. And I'm not just talking about husband and wife here. I mean anybody, anybody. Look at your neighbor (laughs) seated next to you. You can love that person. You can love them because it's not a feeling. And so we see the connection here between love and service. If you are 
going to serve well, you have to love well. But let's get back to some examples here. John chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, we're learning about what service means. And we already learned that the word deacon comes from diakonos. And here is a, a, a very clear example in John chapter 2. This is the story of Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. And there were servants there. And what did they do? They served. I mean, they served the way you would think the word service would indicate someone serving. They, the, the, whoever was in charge told them what to do. In this case, it was Jesus. He said, take these pots and fill them full of water. Turned out, it ended up turning into wine. They were servants. They were diakonos. Luke 4, 39, after Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, she immediately rose up and waited on or served. The word there is diakoneo, same root word. She rose up when Jesus healed her, and she got busy. She started serving a meal. It's the same word, same word group. And sometimes the word simply refers to general service without any designation as to what the service may entail. John 12, 26, Jesus says, If anyone serves me, diakone, let him follow me. You say, okay. Well, what, is, what does that mean? He doesn't say. He doesn't say, if anyone serves me, my father will honor him. Well, what does it mean to serve Jesus? He doesn't spell that out. You've got to kind of figure it out as you go. It's not specific. And here's another one, Romans 13, 3 through 4. Paul speaks of the government as ministers or diakonos of God for your good. So the government, and, and who is in charge of the government of his day? You know, Herod, eventually Nero, those were not stellar um, advocates of order and morality. And yet they are the government is a minister, a diakonos of God for your good. And often in the New Testament, when we see the Greek word for service, it is used to speak of what you would think of, namely spiritual service. Paul speaks of his work as serving the saints. In 2 Corinthians 8, 3 through 4, he says that the churches in Macedonia, Macedonia was a very, very poor area of uh, around Greece. Macedonia begged to be allowed to participate in the support of the suffering saints in Jerusalem. The word there for support is uh, diakonia. Diakonia, it's the same word group. Deacon, it's diakonos. In this case, it referred to giving of money. They wanted to give money in order to supply the needs of the people who were in Jerusalem during the famine and the people were hungry. And the way the word is used in Acts and the epistles, a believer in any form of ministry can be called a deacon or a servant of Christ. We see that in 1 Corinthians 12, 15, where Paul says, there are a variety of ministries, but the same Lord. Guess what? The word ministries is the same word group. Diakonia, diakonia. So if you are one who ministers in any capacity, you are in some sense a deacon by definition. You are a deacon. You are a servant. And the same usage of the word there for believers all being diakonos or diakonia, the same usage is found again in 2 Corinthians and in Revelation and some other places. And so what's the point of all of this? I just led you through a bunch of scriptures. Some of you are trying to keep your eyelids open. What's the point of this? The point of this is simply to show when we talk about deacons, we are, at the irreducible minimum, speaking of those who serve. That's what it means. They serve. We're speaking of those who set their minds and bodies to work for the good of other people in any capacity, any capacity. So one of the things I love to do during the Sunday school hour, is I just, I call it making my rounds. I just go around and I'm looking for people, just trying to serve, I'm trying to, trying to encourage people. And this morning I was particularly on a mission. I wanted to see who was serving. Because there are people serving around here all the time. I got down into one of the children's rooms and there was Rusty Hernandez sitting on a, a table 
and he had a child on both knee, on both knees, and uh, and his wife came over, Isabel came over and showed me a picture, and it was a few minutes earlier than that when he had three children on his knee, and they're in there week after week after week, and and. A little later, I saw the Joneses. Joneses have been serving in that capacity in Sunday school so long that it used to be when we were trying to give geographical directions in the church, we'd say, go down to the Joneses classroom and turn left. You know, faithful servants of God. The ladies who play the piano, the guy in the back who's running sound, the people who take the offering, you know, Once in a while, I see people walking across the the yard. They're talking to someone. They bend down and they pick up a piece of trash. Guess what? We don't pay anybody to do that. You are a deacon. You are a diakonos. You are a servant. You are a servant. And that's what we need to see here. Under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, the apostles established a kind of office an office of deacon in the local church that involved identifying men and probably women as well to minister to the body as an officially recognized group of servants in the church. So there's two things we see here. On on the one hand, we see this general usage of the word. Anybody who serves is a diakonos by definition. And yet the apostles made it something more. For some, they picked out a few who would be the official servants of the church. It's interesting to note here that there's no counterpart to deacons in the Old Testament. There's, there's some connection, or at least a perceived connection, with elders to uh, the elders of a local synagogue, but the way they functioned is, is quite different than the way they functioned there. But when it comes to deacons, this is a new thing. This is new to the church of the living God. There wasn't anything else that the apostles were borrowing from. The office or ministry responsibility of deacon in the church was brand new. And we're not even sure when it was initiated. And another important note here is that while we get the point that deacons were the designated servants, it's difficult to nail down exactly what it was that they did in the early church. And that brings us to the second point, namely the duties of the deacons. What are the duties of the deacons? When Bible scholars talk about the duties of deacons, trying to figure out any place in in the New Testament where we might get a picture of what they actually did, the most obvious place, pretty much everybody starts, is in Acts chapter 6. And so why don't you turn with me just briefly here to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And you're probably familiar with the story, okay? But let me catch you up. This is Acts 6, right? So this is early on in the church's life. Acts chapter 2 is when the Holy Spirit comes, and they're speaking in tongues, right, and all of that. And it it seems as if God is creating his church there. Something new is happening. And, um, And that is like right at the beginning. And here we are in that same time period. There hadn't been years that have gone by, days, maybe weeks. And here in chapter 6, they run into a problem. Okay, so started with 120 people who were the disciples of Jesus in the upper room uh, when the resurrection happened. That was all that was left of all the multitudes, 120 people. And then in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches that great sermon after his compadres, the other disciples, step out into public, and they're speaking real languages that they hadn't learned. And at first, people think they're drunk, and then they realize all over, people had come to Jerusalem for the feasts, for the Passover, and for Pentecost, which was 50 days later. And here they are at Pentecost, and all of these Jews who had come from various nations and islands with different languages They're hearing the apostles speak the praises and the wonders of God in their languages. And the Holy Spirit moves the apostle Peter to begin preaching. And you remember what happened as a result of his preaching? How many people were converted? How many people came to know Christ, were saved, born again, whatever you want to call it? 3,000, right? 
And then Peter, Peter preaches some more. There's like 5,000 now. It's multiplying. You add women and children. We're talking 20,000. I mean, how many people are we talking about here? A lot of people. And they know what's going on in Jerusalem. And they came for the feasts. And now that the feasts are ending, they don't want to leave. And so what do you do? Your church just went from 120 <laughs> to like 20,000 overnight or over a period of weeks. What do you do? How are you going to feed all of these people? And so there was apparently a distribution of food that went out, but not necessarily to everybody. And here's what we read in Acts 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, Hellenists, that's a, that's a term that comes from Greek culture, Helen of Troy kind of became the... the, the um, the figure or the, the, the kind of the mascot of what it means to be Greek. And so when Alexander the Great w- went into a, a, to an area and conquered it, he brought in the Greek language, he brought in Greek culture, and they called it Hellenizing. And so these were Hellenistic uh, Jewish women that he's talking about here, and, and let's just read it. A complaint by the Hellenists or the Greeks arose against the Hebrews, the Jews. So this is Jew and Gentile, right? Because their widows were being neglected in the distribution. And so the twelve, that is the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Again, this is the apostle saying this. It's not right for us to serve tables. Our job is to preach the word of God. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose, and here's the seven men, I just want to point out to Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and then a number of other guys. Now, a couple of interesting things here. Number one, all of these people have Greek, Greek names. These are Greeks that they've chosen. Uh, so we know they're not deacons in the formal sense because the church of Jerusalem was still kind of struggling with the whole Jew-Gentile thing, right? You remember Paul rebuking Peter to his face because that issue wasn't totally cleaned up yet? It was much later on. And so we know if these were Greeks, then they weren't deacons in the formal sense of serving in the Jerusalem church. Um, and something else to notice about them is they weren't deacons in the sense that you might think they, they would be deacons. You might look at someone and say, you know, elder, uh, probably not, maybe deacon. Uh, probably not apt to teach. And so let's make him a deacon, right? But notice who we're talking about here. This was Stephen, and this was Philip. I mean, who is Stephen. I mean, if there was anyone who was close to being an apostle and not an apostle, it was Stephen. You remember the thing that you remember most about Stephen? Chapter 7 of the book of Acts? 7, heaven. That's how you remember that. Stephen went to heaven. How did he go to heaven? He was sent there. He was dispatched by the Jews who stoned him to death. And while they were stoning him and leading up to his stoning, he was a preacher. And he preached with power, so much power that they killed him. And because of that, there was a great dispersion. The, the, uh, the Christians just spread out all over the place in, in, uh, in Israel and Asia Minor and all over. And, and what did they take with them? The gospel began to spread. It was called the dispersion or diaspora. And, and then another thing to notice here is the words that are used. Look in verse 1, at the end of verse 1. Um, the Hellenists arose against a complaint from the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because the widows were not be, were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now you wouldn't see this in the English, but in the Greek it's diakoneo, or it's diakonia, diakonia. This is a preposition. It's the prepositional use of the word diakonos, servant to serve. The distribution was the service. And so what was happening were the Hebrews were taking care of the Hebrews. Nobody was taking care of the Greeks, the Greek widows. 
So what do we have here? You want to make this real current? We had racial problems. We had a division of ethnicity and culture in the early church. I mean, only weeks old. Big deal. This is a big deal. And notice in verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right for us to give up preaching the word of God to serve. Um, and this, too, is a form of the word diakonos. It's, it's the verbal form, diakonein. And therefore, the brothers picked out these men. And these men. And, and what kind of men were they? Notice what it says. And they, um, let's see. In verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among, among you seven men of good repute, good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now, what's he saying? You kind of get the impression here. Pick the best of the best of your leaders. Not apostles, but pick from among you the guys you trust the most, the guys who are the most spiritual, the guys who you look up to and say, if we're going to follow anybody as a leader, this, this is one of those guys. They're full of the Spirit. They're full of wisdom. This is the cream of the crop. And how many people do they have to serve? Upwards to 20,000, maybe? And so what are we saying here? Are they actually cutting the bologna and putting the mayonnaise on, you know, the matzah, and passing it out? I doubt it. Ask anybody who's tried to, to manage a project like this, and they'll tell you, we, we do very little of the work. We're managing people. And part of the management of the people had to be dealing with this problem, the conflict, the disagreement, the hurt feelings. In fact, pretty much everybody I read said, these men had to get out there and counsel. And so these, this is not your stereotypical deacon. These are men who are full of the Spirit, who are very capable, who can step into a situation and say, everybody gather together, let me give you instructions, and you too, come over here, I need to talk to you personally. We're going to work out our differences, and send you back and get you to work. Good leaders, the best. Now, we need to be careful here not to look at this and say, these are deacons. These are not deacons in the sense that the apostles would establish an order or a, an office or the responsibility of deacon. I, I hedge on the, the proper term to put on there because the scriptures don't give a proper title like office and the fact that office usually indicates that people have authority to oversee and that misunderstanding in a lot of churches has caused there to be tremendous conflict between two boards, as if, this were, uh, as if they were taking their idea of elders and deacons from the way the United States Constitution has set up our ruling powers, right? You have a sharing of power. That's, that's not the way it is. It's not two different branches of the same kind of power. It's the elders who are overseeing and leading and preaching and praying and directing. And it's the deacons who are serving and relieving the elders of other responsibilities so they can focus on the main thing. Ministry of the word and prayer and oversight of the church in general. And that's the picture of Acts chapter 6. And so when we look at Acts chapter 6, we say, is that talking about deacons? Not really, but what it does show us is that early on in the church, we see this doctrinal development, as it were. The apostles are beginning to do things and solidify things. They will become solidified later, but establishing patterns and this was a major, major pattern. We must focus on the ministry of the word and prayer and oversight. And we will have other capable men who will take care of all the other issues, even issues that are so important. They have 
um, at least the possibility that it could split the church irreparably. And yet they turned it over to able, faithful, godly men. Alexander Strzok says, the task required skilled men of high moral character who could be trusted to fulfill the responsibilities with integrity and ability. And think about what would happen if they got the wrong men. The wrong men could exacerbate the problem, right? <laughs> Go out there with a whip. The wrong men could have deepened the divide. The wrong men could have sown suspicion and mistrust and turmoil. But with the help of these godly men, verse 7, look at verse 7. With the help of these godly men, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great number of the priests, Jewish priests, became obedient to the faith. They left Judaism and began following Jesus by following the apostles. Now, you don't really hear anything else about deacons in an official capacity in the church until we get to Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 1, which was written approximately 30 years after the the controversy that took place in Acts chapter 6, here Paul addresses his letter to the Philippians and he says this, to the saints in Philippi with the overseers and deacons. With the overseers and deacons. It's our first indication that, that the apostles had established this role in the church, this group of men who they are now calling deacons, which again means what, class? Servants. They are, I mean, everybody should be a servant. These are the designated servants. And so we know that by this point, they had become, it had become the practice of the church to identify certain men who would minister in the, the official servants of the body. And yet, even here in Philippi, Paul doesn't explain what the duties of the deacons entail. All we know for sure is that they were, by definition, servants of the church and of those elders. And we can infer that their role was to serve the practical, physical, and even many of the spiritual needs of the church so that the elders could devote themselves to leading the church and ministering the word of God and prayer. And we've, we've wrestled with this as elders. In fact, we've, it seemed like every time we went to another church leadership team, we had access to another church leadership team, we'd be talking about wives and children and certain ministry, and we would say, hey, can we just talk about deacons for a minute? And the room would get quiet. Because <laughs> there's so little said about it. And so how do you structure this? How do you lead it? If the Bible, I mean, we're, we're Bible people. We're book people, right? We, we get our instructions from the book. And this, the book's not giving us any instructions on this. Very definitely a pattern. And very definite evidence here. And then it becomes unavoidable here in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy because he's giving us the qualifications of the deacons right after the qualifications for an elder, so there's no ambiguity anymore. This is definitely a prescribed group of men who will serve as the servants in the local church. They will be the deacons. But here, even up to Philippians, we have no idea what their actual duties are. What they do in the church is determined by something else. You know what it's determined by? determined by the need. What's needed? What's needed that the elders shouldn't be bothered with so that they can continue their their ministry of shepherding the body, ministering the word and prayer. And and that doesn't just mean preaching the word. It doesn't mean just teaching the word. It sometimes means just sitting down with someone and saying, hey, brother, I know you're struggling. Can I just remind you of this scripture and that scripture, this promise and that warning? And can I pray with you? That's shepherding too. You say, well, I can do that. Yes, you can. And we hope you will. We hope you do. In fact, you, you just watch after the worship service here. You're, you're going to find little groups of people here and down the hall in Fellowship Hall, people just grouping up, praying for one another. Because that's, a, that's the way it should be. Can you do that? Yes. Does it have to be deacons? No. Does it have to be elders? No. And so there's definitely overlap in all of this. 
But God has ordained that a certain group of people be set aside as the official servants of the church. What do they do? Just depends on the need. As official servants, they may be called upon to manage the church's money or the facilities. You know, there's a deacon who comes and cleans up after all of this during the week. Uh, There are deacons who, as I said earlier, take the offering. They make sure the bulletins are done. They're over in the office early in the morning, making sure things are proofread and printed and cut and inserted and and all of that stuff. There are are deacons who head ministries. All All of our key ministry heads are deacons. But it's not just about organization and administration. We also have deacons who help the elders specifically with spiritual duties because there's a lot of people here. And it's just hard to know everybody and to be able to minister to them. And so we've asked a set of men, a hand-picked group of men from the elders, uh, from the body, would you help us to minister to the body spiritually? Sometimes we have deacons teach because they can teach. Stephen could teach. Stephen could preach. And Philip, the evangelist. All of Samaria, as best we can tell, came to know Jesus as a result of the ministry of Philip. And then God uh, took him to, um, uh, remember the, the, uh, the, the guy from uh, Egypt uh, who came up, the, the Ethiopian eunuch. And, uh, and the Holy Spirit told Philip, see the guy in the chariot? Chase him down. <laughs> and have your Bible ready or a tract or something, I don't know. But, and he, he got up in the, and, and, he, and he found the Ethiopian eunuch. Standing there, and he's reading from Isaiah 53. How's that? You don't need a track. It's right there in front of you. He's reading. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how do I understand this without somebody explaining it? Well, can I explain it to you? At the end of the explanation, the Ethiopian said, "Uh, is there any reason why I shouldn't be baptized, become a disciple, a learner, a follower of Jesus? And they went into the water. And the text says, when they came up, the Holy Spirit woof, whisked, whisked him away, uh, uh, Philip away. And he found himself in Samaria where that great deal happened. All I'm saying is, these men, at least those two, were extremely gifted and led of the Spirit of God. Um, fact is, everyone in the church body is called to serve in practical ways. But here's the thing. You can't be considered one of the official servants of the church unless you meet certain qualifications. And that brings us to the last point, qualifications for deacons. And I spent a lot of time on qualifications for elders, and there's some overlap here. So we're back in 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and beginning with verse 8. And let me just read it. We haven't read our text for the morning. I guess all of that's been introduction, right? So verse 8, deacons likewise. Now, this is interesting, and I'm not going to go into whether women can be deacons or not. Um, But I will point out that what Paul is doing here is he's pointing back to the elders. And he's saying, just as we're establishing elders, so we are establishing something else called deacons. And then when he gets to to the women... He says, the women, your translation may say wives, it's inconclusive in the text. It, it's gune, it, it, it means woman. It could be wife. I was reading uh, Knight this morning, uh, one of my favorite scholars, just looking at this text again, and he takes a position that it really is wives. And, and so Paul is giving qualifications. It's not just the man, it's the man and his wife. And that could be, or it could be, that he's talking about women, whether they're wives of these men or not. And he says there, likewise, again. And so the pattern may very well be that the Apostle Paul is saying, the servants, the designated servants, we're not talking about, not talking about women who have authority over men, anything like that. We're talking about servants. And there are some churches who do a really good job at this. And the deacons really don't have any meetings. They don't make any authoritative decisions. They just organize who's going to serve. Who's going to be here? Who's going to be there? Who's going to take care of this? Who's going to take care of that in an organized fashion? In any sense, I said I wasn't going to get into that quagmire, and I won't go any further. But it is worth 
delving into and, um, and learning from. And so here we go again. Chapter 3, verse 8. Deacons likewise, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, or women, likewise, dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. And so here we go. Let's, let's walk through these just one at a time and very briefly. Nine qualifications for deacons. In reality, the only difference, and we've mentioned this before, between deacons and elders in terms of qualification is that the elders need to be qualified to teach the word. All the rest are overlap. And we also have uh, Titus, where Paul wrote to Titus and gave him a similar list here for the same duties. And so what is a deacon to be like? What is his character to be like? By the way, he's not telling us duties. He's telling us about character, which tells us something about where Paul puts the emphasis Not so much on what the man does, but who he is. Who he is. I was watching a question and answer with John MacArthur this week. He was talking about leadership. And he said, look, I just hire men. I try to get the best men around me. And when I hire them, I say, now go find something to do. Just go find something to do. If he's a quality man, he's going to find some way to contribute. And and that's the same kind of thing here with the deacons. We don't know what he's going to do. But we do know this. He needs to be... He needs to meet these qualifications. He needs to be dignified. The term normally refers to something that's honorable, respectable, esteemed, or worthy. It's closely related to respectable, which is given a qualification also for the elders. Not double-tongued, verse 8. Those who are double-tongued will say one thing to certain people, but then some, something else to other people, and say one thing but mean another. You kind of can't pin them down. Uh, They're two-faced and insincere, and their words cannot be trusted. They lack credibility and are therefore not qualified to be a deacon, even though they may spontaneously serve. Uh, Thirdly, not addicted to much wine, verse 8. We saw this at some length with regard to elders. A man is disqualified for the office of deacon if he is addicted to wine or any strong drink or I would say any, any other substance or enslaving whatever. You may not be addicted to wine, but you may be addicted to porn, and, and that would disqualify you just as, as quickly. And then next, not greedy for dishonest gain. If a person is a lover of money, he's not qualified to be a deacon, especially since deacons often handle financial matters in the church. Guess who counts the money after the service? Deacons. If they're lovers of money, we don't want them counting the money. <laughs> And by the way, we always have two of them in there, at least two of them in there, just, just for accountability. I just say that so you should know. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Next, verse 9, sound in the faith and life. Paul also indicates here that a deacon must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And the phrase mystery of the faith is simply one way Paul speaks of the gospel. It's a mystery. It's the mystery of the faith. How, any, how anyone that gets reconciled to God is a spiritual reality that we can hardly describe except with biblical terms. It's a mystery of the faith. I mean, isn't it mysterious to you? I mean, we understand justification. We understand the doctrine of adoption. We understand, you know, all the other doctrines related to the gospel, right? But when I just look at my life and I think, how in the world? How in the world? And Why? Why, God, why did you save me? And I just think, I mean, just apart from understanding the doctrines that are behind this that the Word of God gives us, it's still a mystery to me why he would save me. Isn't it? Isn't it a mystery to you that he saved me? It should be a mystery that he saved you too. You say, yeah, Pastor, I can hardly believe it. Consequently, the statement refers to the need for deacons to hold firm to the true gospel without wavering. Again, spiritual qualification. It's got to know the gospel. It's got to cling to it. But this qualification does not merely involve one's beliefs. It must also involve um, 
his behavior. He's got to have a clear conscience. That is, the behavior of a deacon must be consistent with his beliefs. In other words, he must be a gospel-shaped man or woman, if you go in that direction as well. And next is blameless, verse 10. Paul writes that deacons must be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Blameless is a general term referring to a person's overall character. For the elders, it was above reproach. Although Paul doesn't specify what type of testing is to take place, at a minimum, the candidate's personal background, reputation, theological position should be examined, and we do um, for all of our elders and deacons. And you've seen when our elders... Uh, one by one, have been ordained around here. And the process that they go through, it really takes months and really years, actually, because uh, we're, always, we're always looking for qualified men. And, and you demonstrate that you're qualified over a period of years of faithfulness. Um, we want to see if, if you're going to shepherd. We're going to see if you're going to serve. Listen, if you're not serving now, you won't serve when we give you a title. And so they, they must be tested. Their doctrine has to be tempted, tested. We ask them personal questions. We get into their life. Because the very clear teaching of Scripture here, that let them also be tested. And it doesn't give us the test. It's left to us to determine what a reasonable test would be. And so let their background be tested. Let their families be tested. Moreover, the congregation should not only examine the potential deacon's moral, spiritual, and doctrinal maturity, but... He should also consider the person's track record and service of the church. And he should have a godly wife, verse 11, if, if this is indeed wives. Um, and again, that's debatable. But um, in any case, the women are to be godly women. Wives are not. They're to be godly women, not malicious gossips. They shouldn't go around uh, stirring up strife or separating people. She must be sober-minded or temperate, temperate. She must be able to make good judgments and not be involved in things that might hinder such judgment. And finally, she must be faithful in all things. And this is the general requirement, which functions similarly to the requirement of the elder to be above reproach once again. And for deacons, it means they need to be blameless. And then next, husband of one wife. Talking to the men here, obviously, he must be a one-woman man. And that means that he must be... Uh, the, there must be no other woman in his life to whom he relates in an intimate way, either emotionally or physically. It doesn't mean that there can't be a divorce in his past. You know, we'd probably have to ask questions about that, um, but that's not necessarily a disqualifier. Uh, there could be, I mean, we're all sinners, right? We're all sinners. We've got to be careful when we're putting leaders. We don't just say we're all sinners and then anybody can get in. We've got to follow Scripture, but we don't want to go beyond what is written either. And so it's a delicate thing. But a man has to be a husband of one wife. He's got to be a one-woman man. He's got to be known as a guy who loves his wife singularly. Husband of one wife. And then the hardest one here is the last one, manage children and household well, verse 12. A deacon must be the spiritual leader of his wife and his children. And so what's the difference between what a deacon does and what you might do? Answer, just by definition, nothing, really. Well, then why have a set of men who are designated as servants? Well, there are some administrative reasons why, obviously. But I think on a more important level, God, by the Holy Spirit, through the apostles, wanted the church to hold up people in the body and say, you want to know what a mature believer looks like? Look at them. You want to know how to live? Look at them. Look to the elders, yes, but look at them. One of the most beautiful things about the ministry of the deacons is that they not only serve the elders by serving the church, they also serve as models for every believer in the church. If discipleship is about learning Jesus, right? His life, his character, his behavior, and teaching, then these men show us what Jesus is like by the way they live and by the way they serve, regardless of what that service may be.
After all, it was Jesus, once again, who in the upper room, on the night he was betrayed, he was the leader, he was the Lord. But he stripped himself down, wrapped himself in a towel, and he washed their feet. You ever washed anybody's feet before? I mean an adult, not, not babies. You ever washed anybody's feet before? It's humbling. It's humbling. And you know what? It's even humbling to be the one whose feet are being washed. We don't practice foot washing here. I remember one time we were talking about this, and I had Frank Shannon when I was a young pastor, and got Frank Shannon up here, and we were I was preaching about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and we got Frank up here. I pick on Frank too much, don't I? But uh, he's not an elder anymore, so we can pick on him. <laughs> um, we took his shoes off, and I got a basin and a towel, and washed his feet, just to to demonstrate what that would look like. But I remember what I was thinking when I did that, and I thought, this is weird. <laughs> this, is, this is awkward. This is strange. And you know what Frank was thinking? Boy, get this over with. <laughs> and that's why he chose to do it. This is the level of service and love that we are called to. Jesus was the one who wrapped himself in the towel. He is Lord. And it was in that moment that he said, you call me Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And you've seen me wash all of your feet. Now you go do as I have done. In other words, serve. Serve at the lowest level. Listen, if, if you're too important to reach down and pick up a piece of trash off the grass or you're too important to get down on one knee and have a conversation with a child, or minister in children's ministry, or clean toilets, or serve food. If you're too important for that, you're too important for Jesus. In your own eyes, you're more important than he is. And you need to repent. I say that with a smile. Because I need to hear that daily. Because my flesh, like yours, is committed to exalting self. It's committed to exalting self. It was Jesus who said that. It was Jesus who said that the greatest among you will be your what? Diakone, your servant. It was Jesus who said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve. Even the Son of Man. You remember what he's talking about there? It's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is presented to the Ancient of Days. God the Son is being presented to God the Father. And to him, God the Son, is given all the peoples and all the nations that they should, what? Serve him. And yet when he came, he, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, never explained Daniel chapter 7, he knew what he was talking about. Father knew what he was talking about. Some of the people around him maybe knew what he was talking about. And he said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And what was the context? The disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. That'll plunge a church into conflict and despair. We need men and women like this. In fact, we have men and women like this. One of the things I'm asking you to do in your small group is to identify some of them and tell them you appreciate their service. We need men and women like this. In fact, Paul tells us to look for them. Look for them. Be on the lookout for them. And, and I don't mean try to, try to see them like you know, you're, you're trying to see the Yeti or something. Although in some churches it might be that rare, but look at them. Look at them. Watch them. Here's what he says. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul repeatedly says things like this. Even in the Old Testament, the psalmist wrote, mark the perfect man. Why? Look at his life and imitate him if he's following Christ. So you see, beloved, we are all greatly helped in the progress of discipleship 
by having living, breathing models of Christ, joyfully laboring and serving among us. And this is what the ministry of deacons is all about. Remember the description of the seven servants in Acts chapter 6? They were men of good reputation. They were full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Deacons are God's choice servants. And every believer in the church should aspire to become one. Deacons are not a special breed of human. They are simply mature believers who would tell you they are not mature, but they are growing into the likeness of Christ. They are simply spirit-filled people who take seriously what Paul said about our salvation, namely, that while we were not saved by works, we were saved to good works, to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And deacons also believe the promise of grace found in the last verse here in 1 Timothy 3. Look at verse 13, last of this section. Listen to this word of grace to you who serve. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is a, this is a blessing beyond compare. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing and also great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. In other words, those who serve well will be lifted up by the Lord in the eyes of his people. These people are pleasing to the Lord. It reminds me of James. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. He will bless you with honor and blessing and And that will likewise embolden them all the more in their faith to serve the church in meaningful ways. I think that's what he means at the end when he says, good standing for themselves and great confidence or boldness in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. They're more bold than ever to serve. You say, well, when I think of boldness, I think preaching the gospel. And you would be right. Deacons can do that too. And do it with boldness. The more faithful you are, it seems, the more bold you become. The more unfaithful. I mean, if you're living in unfaithfulness to the Lord, you lose your moral authority to lead and to serve and to influence at all. I mean, you just just feel it. You don't want to lead anybody else. You know you're not right. You know something's wrong. But when you're serving the Lord, when you're walking with him and you're in fellowship with him, and you're rejoicing in him. You're remembering your justification, right? You're remembering that the only reason you have a relationship with God is because of what Christ did. And all of your righteousness before God is Christ. Christ for righteousness. We don't stand before him based on our own works of service. We stand because of Christ's work of service. His active obedience And all of that emboldens us and quickens us and energizes us to then serve according to whatever need there may happen to be before us. Are you a faithful diakonos in a general sense? And those of you who are deacons in the church, are you being a faithful diakonos in the way Paul describes it? Do you see yourself as a servant of Christ and therefore a servant of the church? a servant of the people around you, a servant of the sick, a servant of the poor, a servant of the unbelieving, the sorrowful, the burdened, the joyful, and the stranger? If that's the case, then you are already a deacon, whether you've been named to the office or not. You are already living the gospel that you believe. And we are all blessed and thankful for your service. Because in your life, As you serve, we see Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. They are at the same time encouraging and convicting. 
But we pray, Father, that by your Spirit we would leave encouraged, knowing that he who has begun a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Our sanctification is your work that we cooperate with, but our standing before you is always based on Christ's work. And so we rejoice in that, and we are encouraged by that. And if there is sin to confess, Lord, we know that you've already promised to forgive us and have forgiven us already in Christ. Therefore, we have boldness to ask. Oh, Father, be glorified in us. If there are 300 people in this church, may there be 300 servants in this church who are eager to identify ways to serve in the body and outside the body to the praise of your glorious grace, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.